Hello and welcome to this Start Somewhere COP26 podcast, hosted by me, Sarah Vaughan. My amazing guest for this episode is an influencer, business leader, campaigner, and the co-author of Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take, which is due out this October. Paul Pullman, welcome to Start Somewhere. Thank you, Sarah. I'm honored to be here. And, and, and this is our second time round, our second attempt at doing this, isn't it, Paul? Because like last time, climate change took us out. <laughs> oh, exactly. We are direct victims of climate change. I had a big storm at my house that knocked out the electricity here. That is uh, very unusual for the time of the year. And you had dealt this week with storms and fires. So this is reality. We're talking indeed. Yeah, so it's very, very sobering that this conversation takes place against the very real effects that we both felt in different places. I really no, question. And sobering is the is the right word because I just came back from the wedding of my son this weekend, so we definitely will have a sobering period to recuperate. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, as you know. <laughs> For this podcast, we always start out by by asking, "How did you start summer?" Tell us about you know, like you know, where you grew up, you know, what your early passions and influences were. Because I I always feel that they really shape who we become later on in life. Yeah, that probably is a part of that, although I believe you develop throughout your life and that goes on until you depart for, for better worlds. But um, at the end of the day, I was born in 1956, which I thought was a long time after World War II. But the older I get, the more I realize how close it actually was to the war. And my parents, who had met in Boy Scouts and, and Girl Scouts, which my father was leading and my mother on her side, and, and then they got married, were very much oriented towards ensuring that uh, the things that were deprived from them, like high school during World War II, or like the, the conflicts and wars that they had to deal with, that we would not suffer from that. So most of their activities were focused on building their communities, uh, the church work. My mother actually was a teacher, so she put enormous value on education and ensuring that we obviously got the, the right education and, uh, and, and studied uh, at times when it might have been difficult uh, for children to concentrate and all the other things. But um, it, it was uh, values first and foremost, perhaps, you know, the, the, the values of dignity and respect were very much ingrained in us, the, uh, the values of equity and, and uh, compassion. I think, and, and all they focused on was ensuring that their communities were better, that we would have lasting peace. They were very European in that respect, and uh, that that was an inclusive growth. And, and I'm happy of, of having gotten those values uh, from my parents. Uh, the life was really divided between three things, if I may, uh, uh, school, not surprisingly, uh, church and some of the activities around it, like Boy Scouts, etc., very much always linked to the religion in those days. Mm -hmm. And then sports, which in my case was hockey. Um, so that seemed to fill up the days. We always had uh, happy gatherings together. I grew up in a family of uh, six uh, brothers and, uh, and sisters. Wow. And, uh, so we had to fight for our food. So I still eat very fast, which is an annoyance to my wife. <laughs> but... Uh, that's a definitely a remnant, but you know, you learn to work together and we lived in a small house. So you also learn the, the theory of relativity if you only have one bathroom at home. 
You, you discover that the length of a minute depends on what side of the bathroom door you're on. So, oh, yes, of course. Uh, so that's how we grew up, but happy. You know, we spent our holidays on the Dutch beach. And, and uh, it was only until I was 18, 19 that I took my first flight and actually went to another country. So uh, worked my whole life. I started working very early, uh, which I think was important. The normal uh, newspaper routes were the starting points. But then I went into a factory where my father worked, which was a, a tire factory. I actually did uh, some years being milkman, which was a very rewarding profession where you actually deliver to people's homes. and. And uh, that was a good thing for us. And then I had my own little business that I had started at that time, selling sweatshirts for the hockey club. Really? I didn't know about this. He was there. <laughs> these, were the, these were the team sweatshirts, were they? These were the team sweatshirts with the logo on it. They were coming from the US and they were very new in those days. So I was ahead of time and they sold yeah. well. As ever. Cool. <laughs> that was good. It was a hole in the market. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So, so here you are, with already with a nose for nose for business, <laughs> and then yeah, a set of set of values. So, you know, like when and how did you actually find your 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 purpose? Because, I mean, you know, for, for, for many people, it's 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 you know, it, it's very different. Some can have a a gradual experience. Others have a kind of road to Damascus moment. What was it for you, and how did you find it? Well, with my name being Paul, uh, there certainly should be a road of Damascus moment. This is where Paul <laughs> saw the light and converted. Uh, I was surprised when I lived in Spain that uh, the saint for the advertising agencies was St. Paul. And I asked them, why was that out of interest of my own name? And they said, because he saw the light. So more and more people see the light on the road of Damascus, the better it would be. But I, I believe like you probably that uh, you have crucibles your whole life that form you. It's an ongoing journey. And uh, I was lucky that I was born in the Netherlands. I always felt that I won the lottery ticket of life by having food, by having sanitation, by having education. And that's not the case for most people. So that formed me in a sense of being grateful and wanting to ensure that others got this also in line with my parents' principles. And that's why I wanted to be a priest in the beginning. Then I wanted to be a doctor. I ended up with, frankly, serendipity in business but always felt that uh, the role should be to make this a better world. Uh, so so passion is, is about finding yourself and, and purpose, as you say, is about losing yourself in something bigger than you. So if you really want to make a difference, to help, to give or to serve, uh, you know, that's really where purpose comes in. Um, and for me, I think some of the defining moments in my life, if I think about that, besides my use that we talked about, was, for example, Newcastle. When I moved there in the 90s, uh, was for the first time that I really noticed uh, second generation unemployment, shipbuilding, steel coal had all gone belly up. And the only thing a 14 or 15 year old girl could get was pregnant. And that was her dignity or sort of a sign of respect for the community they lived in, making our own situation worse. And we were the biggest employer there at that time for the company I worked for. So we got heavily involved in the community activities, in the university, in the Newcastle initiative. And, and, uh, and, um, and that, I think, made me what I often have described as a whole person, moving from just focusing on my own career, my family, my security, to really a role that business has to play in, in society. Another crucible would have been uh, my climbing of the Kilimanjaro Blind Trust when one of my, and, and the founding of the Kilimanjaro Blind Trust, but climbing Kilimanjaro 
was when one of my blind friends called me and said, Paul, let's go back. I got married on the Shira Plateau, he told me, and I want to climb uh, again. He's the only blind climber or the first blind climber that has climbed all seven summits, including Mount Everest. So then we decided to take a blind person from all parts of the world with us, and that was a life-changing experience. Uh, uh, they could see more than we did, and it really uh, made us uh, humble, and I was fortunate enough to have my children with me. Then I was stuck in Mumbai on the terrible uh, yeah. terrorist attack in the uh, Taj Mahal, which really puts another perspective on life and where I saw tragedy and goodness of people in, in the same uh, uh, time period. And it makes you realize how valuable life is and, and what the price of poverty is. Uh, my, my presence in the high-level panel when Secretary Ban Ki-moon had the courage to ask others, uh, myself uh, representing the business community, to help develop the sustainable development goals as a sequel to the millennial development goals. And, and we had to reach out for two and a half years to all parts of society, uh, from youth to people with disabilities, to farmers, to educators, whatever groups that, that you can imagine, and, and really soaked it up as a sponge that resulted in the 17 uh, wonderful uh, uh, sustainable development goals that we have and, and the objective of leaving no one behind. Uh, mm -hmm. So crucibles are, uh, are, 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 our purpose is being developed on a continuous basis and I, I'm still working on it, to be honest. <laughs> yes, which, which kind of brings us to, to like how, how you're living your purpose now. I mean, I mean, you know, Paul, since, you know, leaving Unilever, I mean, it's not, it's not like you've been kind of resting on your, your laurels <laughs> or anything like that. I mean, he seems to be more busy than ever before, <laughs> quite frankly. I mean, so tell us about, I mean, one of the things you've done is you've set up a new venture called Imagine. Um, which focuses on driving systems level changes to tackle our biggest challenges like climate change and global inequality. You know, why did you start Imagine? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, first of all, uh, it's, um, I have to say, uh, I don't believe in the word retirement because it sounded that uh, you're <laughs> tired, uh, you were tired before and you're tired again, and that's not very appealing to me, but, but, uh, but no, you, you, were, you were definitely not tired, and I seem to remember you were you were beating most of most of Unilever, including the twenty year olds at marathons, you know, right up to the end of your tenure. No, I know, but but uh, I think if you're in a position uh, by by serendipity or or, or for reasons uh, unknown to us to help uh, make this a better world for all, it's your obligation to do that. And I think I'm still in a position to make a difference in a different level than Unilever. I moved from probably the formal or bought authority when you're a CEO of a big company like that to the moral authority. And that's probably much more liberating. If you can do things with moral authority, it's actually far more impactful. And uh, working at, at uh, three levels, I would say, uh, if I build them up, is the first one is always defend the basic human values because on uh, the world cannot function, humanity cannot be there if we don't def defend these basic human values of dignity, respect, equity, compassion. And we can talk about it later, but that's why I fight for the LGBT or gender rights or uh, get involved in, in some of the other things like abolishing the death penalty in the US and other things. The second level is leadership development. I became the chair of the Said Business School, one of the top business schools in the world. Uh, I'm on the board of some other universities. 
uh, on the board of Prime, the principles for responsible management education. So we very much look like uh, at leadership development, One Young World, uh, the, the performance theater and other uh, activities that develop actually these leaders. And, uh, and reinventing, for example, things like the MBA program, which is in desperate need of being reinvented to create the right leaders for the world. And then at my third level, I drive uh, business chains. And there I co-founded Imagine, actually to help accelerate action towards implementation of the sustainable development goals. We broadly know what needs to be done, issues like climate change and inequality, etc. But we're not moving at the speed and scale that is needed. So Imagine does really two things. It works with the leadership of individual companies to help them shift to uh, what I call net positive, supporting the C-suite in this case to uh, truly want to thrive uh, as a as a company in this world and becoming a net positive contributor, addressing the world's problems versus creating the world's problems, if you want to. And then we also work at industry level where we bring a critical mass of CEOs across the value chain together at industry level, food, finance, fashion, if you want to, to create tipping points. The idea here obviously is that if you have a critical mass of, of courageous CEOs that take collective action to combat these things like climate change or inequality, then you can actually transform industry norms. You can get out of the prisoner's dilemma. You can then also attract the right elements of civil society and together change governments and to truly drive these systems changes. And that is what Imagine is focused on. And then last but not least, uh, because of COVID, I found some more time. People said, you really, uh, I get so many requests from companies and, and to help them. And uh, I cannot really reach them. And I felt kind of bad about this. So we created this book, uh, started this book called Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. Yeah, I know. I wanted to ask you a bit more about the book. Um, I mean, you know, as I think we we all listening to this know, you know, the economic system for business today is is entirely unsustainable, and we are living, you know, way beyond our, our, our planetary boundaries, and have also created tremendous inequality. I mean, you, you've said that business has to take responsibility and not be a bystander in the system. You know, what what does that look like for you? What what does better look like? Well, so, so better is at a lot of levels. And I think you've already referred to it, uh, Sarah, before. Um, Earth's overshoot day, if I may start, was uh, August, uh, sorry, July 29th last year, which is the day actually that we um, use more resources than the world can replenish. We're actually living beyond our planetary boundaries there. And we see the effects of that. The IPCC report shows us how we're way off track and, and really on a disastrous trajectory. Uh, we're getting close to negative feedback loops where uh, you actually, uh, things like the oceans or the Arctic or, or, or the uh, rainforest that were carbon absorbers become carbon emitters. Uh, we're seeing things like uh, methane now coming on, on people's agendas. You know, and this is all a result of our economic model of, of high levels of overconsumption, if you want to, and, yeah. and waste, a linear production model. And we're actually at the point where moving 
from linear to circular economy where you would recuperate everything and reuse again is not enough. We really, with us overshoot day at July 29th, we really need to start thinking about regenerative, reparative, restorative. And this is why we created the book on how to do that. That's not easy. But you know, 91% of all the things that we produce are, are not reused, you know, especially in consumer goods, the number of packages that are being discharged and ending up in the oceans or or in uh, incineration, uh, all of it to devastating effects of the society. The way we produce food, which we can only do apparently by cutting down the world's forest or degrading the land or keeping the farmers poor, uh, is not a thing that is sustainable. And I think it has come home with COVID even more so. COVID has shown us that you can't have healthy people on an unhealthy planet. And the cost we've paid for COVID is enormous. You know, besides having put in 17, 18 trillion dollars to save lives and livelihoods until now in basically the US and Europe, uh, we've lost probably 20, 25 trillion dollars in the global economy. And we're starting to realize that the, the failure to act or the cost of not acting, if you want to, is significantly higher than the cost of acting. And we have these beautiful sustainable development goals, which only cost three to five trillion dollars incremental every year that could address all these issues and, and solve it. Uh, climate change would be a good example of that. We are incurring easily five to six trillion dollars a year now in, in costs, in, in health, in economic loss, etc., because of climate change and the numbers are going up. That's twice as much as it would cost us to implement all the sustainable development goals. And fortunately, because of technological development, because of changing consumer perception and demands, because of pressures from the private sector who see, you know, the, the costs uh, coming in in their uh, income statements and balance sheets, uh, governments are starting to change. We now have 60% of the governments in this world making net zero commitments by 2050, uh, uh, which is needed to stay below the one and a half degrees. But the reality is we have to translate that into concrete action by 2030. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, uh, you know, many uh, are making commitments, but that doesn't get translated yet to action. And that's what we need to focus on. And your COP26 and the COP15 Biodiversity Convention, the food summit that is, is pl taking place this year are all important moments to address these challenges. Yeah, and I, I mean, you know, what we are really talking about is, is, is the need for large scale transformation. <laughs> you know, you know, what is required to do that, like within an organization and how important is purpose in, in kind of leveraging that? Well, purpose is, is incredibly important. I don't think you can do large scale transformations uh, if you don't have a strong purpose. So fully integrating purpose and, and into your strategies, uh, starting to operate under a concept of profit through purpose is, is absolutely key. Mm -hmm. You know, the reality is that 75% of all large scale transformations fail. I've seen that also uh, in Unilever's uh, history. And that is sort of the numbers. Uh, many of these transformations lack uh, methods or processes or or are, are way too complex, uh, uh, most importantly, actually often lack the leadership from the top or the commitments, and they become the flavor of the months. And that's obviously what you have to avoid. So 
Um, starting with a strong purpose, uh, having a simple uh, strategy, if you want to. Uh, in, in Unilever's case, it was uh, doubling our business and decoupling our growth from environmental impact was easily understood. Making sustainable living commonplace was our purpose, was easily understood. Went actually back to the origins of the company, so there was a credibility to do that. Then putting in uh, support structures and capabilities uh, measurements and feedback loops, uh, and then more importantly, working on the people. I think one of the most important things we did in, in the case of Unilever, as we were driving these transformations, is to give everybody the opportunity to find its own purpose, uh, his or her own purpose, and uh, and then collectively make that come alive in the company's purpose. It's very difficult to have a company that's very purposeful if the people are not purposeful. It's very difficult to make a company sustainable if the people are not sustainable. And then the most important thing where people, where, where companies go wrong, I think, is quite often is they have value statements, you know, Enron or Wells yeah. Fargo or Boeing. Undoubtedly, they had value statements, GE, yeah. but um, uh, and, a, and a purpose, you know, of uh, connect people via flying, you know, make banking possible, a GE, uh, eco imagination, whatever that meant. So they had their purpose, they had their values, but their behaviors didn't match and that undermined their culture. And that's very, very important that you work the culture and that takes simple time. In Unilever, I've always said, um, we probably didn't get the real changes until we were five, six years in when people saw our behavior and 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 knew that we were serious. C Stephen Covey said something very well in his book, Seven Habits of, of Highly Effective Leaders, where he said, you cannot talk yourself out of things you have behaved yourself into. So it takes time to <laughs> behave yourself out of things, you know? That's, that's why the role of the CEO and the tone from the top is so important. We underestimate that. But it's amazing to me how many CEOs delegate that responsibility, let's say, of diversity to the HR department, or when they source things from their supply chains that is not within their company's responsibility, they de delegate those responsibilities to their supply chain, etc. You cannot do that anymore. So the tone from the top is, is very important in these uh, larger scale transformations that we're talking. For sure, and I, I remember so well, you know, how we replaced it, Unilever, it wasn't just only the what, it was very much also the how, and and, and that was, you know, really extraordinary and and, and you know, certainly has helped me enormously in, in, in my career. Um, and, and kind of talking of, of women, I mean, like, you know, and, and career, I mean, you know, you know I, I'll never forget going to the Hay Festival on a Saturday morning early, um, and, you know, there was an extraordinary lineup because the whole kind of agenda was women. And, you know, there were extraordinary kind of women like Ariana Huffington, uh, talking and Barbara Stocking and stuff like that. And I will never forget watching you kind of on your day off, walking in, sitting down and, and, and spending the, whole, the, the whole, whole, whole day. And I mean, you know, you are an extraordinary kind of supporter of, of women and inclusive business, but not obviously just women. You're also proper diversity and inclusion in business. So, you know, please, you know, let us know. Please tell us, like, what are the cons of not having women and proper diversity and inclusion? Yeah. At all decision making levels in an organization. Well, first of all, let me say that the Hay Festival is a wonderful festival, and we actually had uh, had a great time because it was in a in a two or three day uh, whatever time you can spend 
you see just some of the most fascinating writers and you can talk and discuss their book, etc. And I certainly hope that our book, Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take, is actually one of the things that brings me to a hay festival, be it virtual or reality in the near future, because it's such an important opportunity, I think, to reach a right audience that does care. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so talking about diversity, it always goes back a little bit to me uh, the, uh, to, to the principles of humanity that I mentioned before of dignity and respect. I mean, humanity wouldn't function if we would not defend these basic human values. And if we erode humanity, we erode the uh, human mankind, if you want to. And empowering women and girls happens to be the biggest single opportunity for, for human development and economic growth. You know, we have a... Um, uh, what's it called? We have the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights that's, that states actually that all humans being born free and equal in dignity and rights without distinction of any kind. And yet we violate that. There are only six countries in the world, even today, where women have the same rights as men. And that is just very hard to understand if you just look at gender as, as an aspect. And yet we have all the facts that show that uh, making societies more inclusive is actually better as well. McKinsey estimated that it could unlock $1 trillion uh, just by COVID if we would invest in, in women and girls now much more than we've done in the past because they've been disproportionately affected. We see that companies that are more gender balanced are actually more profitable. We also see them taking ESG, environmental, social and governance, uh, more seriously. So there's the moral obligation, but there's an overwhelming economic benefit whilst it may, why it makes sense. And yet we still have 20% of the companies in the Fortune uh, 200 that have only male boards. We still have only 5% women CEOs. We have a hard time driving the 30% club in the UK, which is, which is a crime. And I've talked to many companies that say, yeah, I'm not making the commitment because I don't know how I would get there. Or if I do, I'm being held accountable. Well, hell yeah, you're being held accountable. If you can't make that commitment, you shouldn't be a CEO. In Unilever, when I came, we had 34% women in management and our board was basically Anglo- uh, uh, Dutch uh, with with white males, and within a few years, I in fact I made it my condition to become a CEO. We had a fifty fifty gender board with people, two people from China on there, uh, two people from Africa, one uh, first black American woman that had gone to Harvard. Uh, we had a very diverse board, a 50% men, 50% women. And at the end of my tenure, we had a 50-50 balanced organization in all levels of management. Uh, and that includes uh, tougher countries like uh, India or or, uh, or, or tougher pro, um, parts of the business like manufacturing. Uh, we got to a gender balanced organization, which means that in the office, it's actually even a little bit more. And I believe we saw the benefits of that. But I think we took an approach that not only said this is the right thing to do, we linked it very clearly also to the economic benefit of the company. But but like the book Net Positive talks about, uh, we extended the concept of diversity to our total value chain. Many companies think they can outsource their value chain and also outsource their responsibilities. That doesn't work anymore. So, for example, if you truly believe in diversity, you have to be sure that uh, we made a commitment to uh, create jobs for 5 million smallholder farmers, that 2.5 million of those are women. 
in our tea plantations where we had tremendous issues of sexual harassment and other things, cultural issues that happen in some of these countries. We could only solve them at the end after putting a lot of efforts in and social workers and everything, training and development, but we could only solve it when we made half of the supervisors women and the other half men. So um, we took uh, that responsibility beyond our value chain by entering in advocacy, for example, um, the uh, in advertising where where we had the campaigns to to get gender equality advertising is very sexist still and and uh, uh, actually uh, prolongs that uh, that image so we created the unstereotype alliance uh, we worked with the he for she uh, on the 10 by 10 by 10 campaign etc etc to be sure that the governments would uh, implement the right policies that that companies at scale would move so this is very important now as you rightfully say the whole issue of inclusion leaving no one behind which goes to the essence of the sustainable development goals goes way beyond gender it's an issue of lgbt where in some countries still the death penalty is on the books for example and with the b team and other organizations were fighting that very hard it goes to uh, people with disability 1.3 billion people in the world have disability that's 15 percent of the world population and contra contrary to what people believe most of them are in the age group from 18 to 65 in fact it could happen to us tomorrow mm -hmm. for whatever reason and yet um, most companies don't have 15 percent of their workforce with people with disabilities in fact at best one or two percent for best-in-class companies so with organizations like the valuable 500 which i chair that is uh, capably run by uh, Car caroline casey uh, we're trying to change not only the narrative but actually change the uh, concrete actions to ensure that that we get that better representation in all parts of society and these things are absolutely needed to strengthen humanity and anything we would do to prevent this from happening would actually weaken uh, humanity so moral reasons and economic reasons are overwhelming here yes they are as as is courage i, I would say i mean this, this requires courage and you often speak about courageous lead, leadership you know what for you are the hallmarks of courageous leadership and and what does that mean today in this you know covid stressed climate stressed world well, first, it's good to recognize that we have so many challenges at the same time, Sarah, that you're alluding to, and that it's not easy to be a CEO. Uh, some people have said we have the scale of uh, change of the industrial revolution, but the speed of change of the technological revolution, the lifetime of a CEO is becoming shorter and shorter. I was there 10 years, but for the major companies, the lifetime is now less than five years, four and a half years. The length of a publicly traded company is shorter and shorter. In fact, it was 67 years when I was born and it's now 17 years. Uh, the number of publicly traded companies are going down. So it's very difficult to be a leader. Uh, but at the same time, I think uh, it also provides uh, a lot of opportunity. When, when complexity is high, uh, the capacity to adapt, the capacity to evolve or to coordinate or to innovate or to change is equally high. And effective leaders, I think, have have that sense, that, that high degree of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, tolerance for change and disruption. 
Now, what we've seen with COVID is that the most effective leaders are the leaders that have operated with a high level of humanity, humility, a high level of compassion, have shown that they are human beings first and foremost, frequently communicated with their organizations, understood the pressures on their people, tremendous increase in mental health issues, etc. So a courageous leader is, is I, I deliberately use the word courage because it comes from the French word cur, which is heart. So a courageous leader works as much from the heart as he works from the brain. Of course, you need smart, hardworking people that understand the subject matters they're responsible for and all these things. But at the end of the day, a good leader, first and foremost, is a human being and and understands the issues that other people are going through. They have a high level of sensitivity to uh, to other humans, if you want to. Now, it's not easy, you know, it, it takes courage to do nowadays the harder rights versus the easier wrong. It takes courage to set targets that you know that are needed, but for which you don't have all the answers. It takes courage to work in partnership with NGOs and governments because you're not totally in control yourself. It, it takes courage to say that you don't have all the answers, you know, so it requires you to be humble, to be human. And that's difficult for many of the CEOs to do. So that's why we need more of these courageous leaders. Yeah, for, for, for sure. So with, 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 with that in mind, you know, Paul, you know, what is your top tip? And I won't necessarily limit you to one. So what are your top tips maybe for those listening who want to start somewhere? Ooh, for those that are listening, if we keep it uh, simple and, and let's first go through it. The first one is this is a big opportunity. We've talked about threats and too much discussion is around the threats. But at the end of the day, it's a huge opportunity when the cost of inaction are less than the are higher than the cost of action. In Unilever, we had a 300% shareholder return over 10 years. We were operating under a 19% return of invested capital by putting the sustainable development uh, goals at the core. We created the Business and Sustainable Development Commission that we uh, asked Sir Mal uh, 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 Mark Malik Brown to lead. Um, and we found in just looking at four areas, an opportunity of $12 trillion and, and 380 million jobs between now and 2030. So this is about opportunity would be my first message. The second message for individuals is if you want to participate in that opportunity, um, this is very important that you find the sweet spot of uh, what you're good at, what you like, and what the world needs most. And if you can operate under that intersection, you're rolling. You know, Mark Twain said that there are two most important moments in life. It's the moment you were born and the moment you actually found out why you were born. And if you can translate that why into a very purposeful job that we we're talking about difference between passion and purpose, then you're up and flying. My third thing is, is really on the behavior side. My third message probably is, is that you need to live what you preach. There are too many that talk the talk, but don't walk the walk. So sustainable lifestyles, we've often been told that they are unattainable or that they are expensive. That's absolutely the opposite. It's not true at all. Sustainable lifestyles are often better, more rewarding, uh, simpler, actually economically also uh, cheaper, but it starts with yourself. What are you doing to attack the issues of plastic? What are you doing to fight climate change? Are you changing your food habits to change our food system? All these important intersections that uh, that need to be attacked are within your control and your circle of influence. My fourth message is includes the use. You know, we have half the world population yeah. is now below 
30 years old, they're going to be 100% tomorrow. They're more creative, more innovative. They understand technology. Uh, it's their future. So not only give them a seat at the table, actually give them the table. And that brings me to my final point is to work in partnerships. The issues that we have are of such magnitude that none of us can solve them by ourselves. It needs true systems change and that requires us to sit around the table with the broader common objectives more than our own self-interest. We talk about courageous leadership, but at the end of the day, courageous leadership is about putting the interest of others ahead of your own, knowing that by doing so, you're better off yourself as well. So create these broader partnerships uh, to drive these broader system changes. It's also very much a hallmark of what we describe in the book as the net positive company. Yeah, thank you. I mean, those are amazing nuggets, um, <laughs> which I think we can all take to heart and take on. If people want to find out more about you, you know, and the book, um, how, how do they go about doing that, Paul? Well, the book is actually coming out by Harvard Press, October 5, but it's a good thing that if you now go online and you type in net positive uh, and my name, if you want to, you can actually pre-order it already. And I would encourage people to do that because uh, if you wait too long, it might have a longer waiting time. We're getting a lot of traction from companies who want to be net positive, from universities who want to be net positive, from youth movements who are trying to be uh, net positive. And um, it might be, so that would be my uh, uh, best suggestion. Uh, I put some links in my Twitter account, which is at uh, Paul Pullman. So if you look at that, you probably can click on it and get into action. And uh, you have the benefit of having the knowledge before others, so you can start to action it a little bit earlier. Um, we, we will have a heavy launch. We'll have a launch with uh, uh, digital uh, media extensively. Uh, we're talking to about 100 CEOs right now who want to have town halls or other things to get these ideas uh, implemented in their own companies as they drive their own change journeys, etc. So if you're interested as a company or if you're interested as an individual, just send me an email at paul.pullman at imagine.one and, and we will see if we can uh, um, satisfy your, your requests. What we are trying to do here is I've created again a not-for-profit structure around the book is to create a movement where net positive becomes the standard, where companies thrive by giving more than they take, uh, by operating the longer-term multi-stakeholder models, by putting purpose at its core, by having shareholder return as a result of what they do, not as an objective, by taking responsibility of their total impact in the world, by working in these broader partnerships to drive these transformative changes. Those are the hallmarks of companies that are going to be successful in the future. And that is what the book describes. As much focused on the systems transformation that is needed in any of the companies, but also spending some time on, on what we've talked before, the leadership transformation, because it starts with yourselves at the top quite often. Uh, do you care? And it starts with a, a transformation of the culture uh, to underpin all these change efforts. So the book actually is quite complete in that respect, and I think will be well received by anybody reading it. Fantastic, Paul. I mean, thank you for, for your time today. Thank you for your incredible leadership. And, and, and you, you know, you have a kind of relentlessness and determination to, 
to really help the world, which is, is, is and the people of, you know, in it, which is just remarkable. And I, I you know, thank you from the bottom of my heart and for it was inspiring me uh, as well. So, so thank you for, to, you know, and, and best of luck with the book launch. I'm sure it's going to be huge and, and change many lives. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity and uh, good luck with the show. We all need to start somewhere. And we sure do. <laughs> wonderful way to do that. Thanks. Wow, what can I say? I mean, Paul is is just a legend and, and he continues to inspire me on a, a daily basis. Just extraordinary. And do remember to pick up a, a copy of his book, Net Positive. It's incredible. I, I, I've been glued to it and been staying up far too late, kind of reading it into the night. And tomorrow's guest oh, is just so wonderful and so inspiring. She's the incredible Nafisa Richardson, who I met at the Youth Summit in Milan. She comes from the incredible islands of St. Vincent and the Grenadines and became an activist at just the age of seven. She's remarkable and I know you'll love to hear from her.